Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. For this History Today podcast, we're delighted to welcome an old friend of ours, Paul Cartledge, the A.G. Leventis Professor of Greek Culture Emeritus at the University of Cambridge. He's the author of many books on the classical world, the latest of which is Thebes, the forgotten city of ancient Greece. Paul has written an article about Thebes for the June issue of History Today, which is out now. The first thing I want to ask you, Paul, is which Thebes are we talking about? It's a very good question, uh, Paul. And first, let me say thanks very much for having me on this podcast. I value history today as uh, an organ and an outlet for our profession, which I see as ultimately going back to Herodotus, who is, in fact, uh, one of my sources for this book. So you're quite right to ask which Thebes, because the more famous Thebes is, uh, for me, sadly, one not in Greece, but in Egypt. So it's the capital of New Kingdom, that is, late um, second millennium BC Egypt. And in Greece itself, there is another Thebes, it's called Phthiotic Thebes, a very minor place. But the Thebes I'm talking about, in Greek Thebai, it's a plural, is smack bang in the centre of mainland Greece. So it's about 90 kilometres, if you were to go north and west from Athens, you'd hit Thebes. And it's in the middle of a whacking great, pretty flat, Uh, country which is known as Boeotia, which is something to do with oxen. The B.O. bit is something to do with cattle. And it was, in fact, a very wealthy, uh, in terms of natural resources, terrain. So Thebes is the most important city of that bit of Greece. And it is also um, historically one of those cities which, though it periodically surfaces as terribly centrally important, otherwise I wouldn't have written a book about it, it's normally somewhat obscured by its more famous contemporaries in mainland Greece, namely Sparta, where I started my research and career, and Athens. Athens, of course, more famous than Sparta now today, though that wouldn't have been the case, for example, in the 19th century. So, forgotten city in two senses, really. One, because of the prominence of Athens and Sparta, Thebes tends just to get forgotten about. And then secondly, at one point, for 20-odd years, it ceased absolutely to exist. And we're going to come back to that, I think, briefly later on. But it had a brief period of hegemony, didn't it? Which is essentially when... Sparta and Athens ganged up together against Thebes. Um, When was that? What happened? Right, so we're having to think not of what's normally thought of as the golden age of ancient Greece, classical Greece, the 5th century BC, the age of Pericles, Socrates, Sophocles, 
Yankees, all those guys. But move on down into what we, because of our time reckoning system, call the fourth century BC or BCE. For the first 30 odd years, Sparta, having beaten Athens in the famous Peloponnesian War, is top dog. But through the 30 years of its hegemony, that is it being the single most powerful state in mainland Greece, gradually for complicated internal reasons becomes weaker and weaker, both in terms of manpower and in terms of military might, the two going together until in 371 BC, Thebes, which has been on the opposite trajectory from Sparta, rising up, has suddenly acquired the military capacity, the genius generalship of Epaminondas and Pelopidas to actually take on Sparta, previously the most single um, powerful state in terms of land warfare in Greece, to take it on and beat it. And so this is the famous battle of Leuctra, 371 BC, BCE, which opens up a period which historians like to um, classify and categorize, don't they, for convenience. So the Theban hegemony, hegemony being a Greek word meaning uh, leadership, typically in a military context. But in this case, it's not just military, but it's also political because Thebes, under the leadership of, in particular, those two men I've mentioned, Epaminondas, my favorite ancient Greek of all, actually, and Pelopidas, they not only re-established themselves uh, in a particular political uh, way at home, in other words, they had a federal system of government, both for themselves and for the entire region of Boeotia, which they dominated, but they exported their type of politics. They were not imperialists in the old Spartan or Athenian way. They didn't dominate in a very obvious way, but they liked to have satellites. And Epaminondas particularly was the founder of actually two cities, two Greek new cities. It's quite an extraordinary phenomenon. And the first of those was one called Messini. And that meant that Sparta had, at a stroke, as a result of the defeat at Leuctra, lost half its own home territory, together with the, well, their sort of slaves, helots, who had previously been the, the workers, the agricultural workers of that territory. And in order to both stabilize, symbolize the independence of the Messenians, Epaminondas sets up for them a new city, Messini. Huge walls, nine kilometers long. If you go there today, you'll see a very good amount of it still standing. The other city, and it gives us a word in our own vocabulary, is Megalopolis. The Greek for a city is polis, megalopolis. Polis means big city. And Megalopolis was founded north of Sparta in Arcadia, and it incorporated 40 different communities, a new sort of um, settlement. It was a federal capital of all the Arcadians. So Epaminondas exported Theban federalism to Arcadia. And in both cases, interestingly, on a democratic basis, not a radically democratic basis, but a democratic basis which gave ordinary Arcadians, ordinary Thebans a say in a way that they hadn't had before. The reputation of Thebes was trashed essentially, wasn't it? I mean, you've already referred to 
Herodotus, that they had this reputation as traitors to Hellenism. Why was that? Well, now we have to track back, and this is a sad um, phenomenon, because uh, I mentioned already that for 20 years, Thebes as a city ceased to exist altogether. Well, it was physically destroyed. And the justification for the uh, destruction was that, as you've mentioned, going back into the 5th century, going back to the early 5th century, this is the famous period when the Persian Empire decides it wants to add mainland Greece as another province of its already massive empire, stretched from the Aegean in the west to uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan in the east, wanting to add mainland Greece, partly to sort of shut them up and stop them interfering in their own empire in Asia. Xerxes, the great Persian king, launched this massive invasion. So the issue for mainland Greeks was, do we either roll over on our back and say, come on in Persia, we're not going to resist you because we can't, or we actually like the fact that you're coming in, do we pretend or try to be neutral? We're not actually going to resist you physically, Xerxes, um, but we're not saying that we're very, very positively for you or against you. We're just going to stay neutral. Or thirdly, and this was the option that only a very, very few, very brave Greek cities, and they happened to include right at the top Sparta and Athens, they decided to resist. They swore an oath, a religious oath, that they would resist the Persians in the name of Greek freedom and the Greeks' gods, all sorts of uh, motives combined together. And Herodotus, who was himself born a Persian subject in Asia, grew up under the shadow of the past of Persian imperial domination, but within the bright light that uh, dawned because those very, very few Greeks led by Sparta and Athens, they won. They actually not only resisted, but they beat the invading Persians. Battle of Thermopylae, a defeat. Battle of Salamis, a victory. Battle of Plataea, a victory. And Herodotus, the world's first historian, was the historian of that conflict. Why did the Greeks and the Persians fight each other? Why did the Greeks, the few loyalist resisting Greeks, why did they win? So where does Thebes fit in? Well, as I've said, it was the most important city in central Greece, in Boeotia. So its stance, you know, was it for or against? Was it neutral? Was it active? Was very important to the shifting balance of the Greeks' resistance. The Theban leaders, who were pretty extreme oligarchs, so they had nothing in common politically with Athens, which was a democracy, had more in common with Sparta, but Sparta was resisting. Nevertheless, the Thebans went over to the Persian side. They, in the, if you, as you put it yourself, actually, they betrayed the Greek, the Hellenic cause, which Herodotus is the historian of. So, um, roll forward 145 years after the treachery of 480 BC, go to 335 BC. Lots of things have happened, including that hegemony I've just mentioned. Well, Thebes becomes a democracy in the fourth century, and it allies this time with Athens. It sees that it's... Uh, future lies more with cooperating with Athens rather than, as it normally had done, 
fighting Athens. Well, who's the enemy in the fourth century? It's not Persia. Persia still exists as an empire, but not for much longer. But the enemy now is Macedon, the kingdom of Macedon, created mainly by Philip II, father of Alexander, who becomes Alexander the Great. Well, in 336 BC, for purely internal reasons, Philip is assassinated uh, at one of his capitals during a, a famous marriage uh, ritual. It's a very public uh, assassination, something like uh, Lincoln in uh, the theater. And as a result of Philip's um, assassination, his son, his oldest son, Crown Prince Alexander, takes over as king. Well, Alexander has a big project. It's his father's originally, but he takes it over, which is to conquer at least some part of the Persian Empire, which still exists. Alexander wants a field for glory. He wants to be a new Achilles. There is the Persian Empire. This is great. Well, now, before he gets to go over to Asia, Thebes, which had been a subject of Philip and so was a subject of Alexander, rises up in rebellion against Alexander. Big mistake. Alexander, before he goes off to Asia, must have a quiescent Greece. So he's going to make a huge example of anybody who dares to resist him. The Thebans dare to resist him, they're very important. He marches down 500 kilometers in 12 days, fantastically quick, outside the gates of Thebes. And Thebes, of course, famously has seven gates. This is the uh, famous mythical, actually, seven gates of Thebes. But at any rate, there's a bit of fighting. Alexander and his Macedonians win easily, and then disaster. The decision is taken to destroy the city of Thebes physically, with two exceptions. One, all the religious shrines. Alexander is very religious. You mustn't physically destroy a temple or an altar. Secondly, and this is more propaganda, Mad Madison Avenue, he spares one house. And the house was one that once had been lived in by a famous poet at the time of the Persian Wars, a man called Pindar, who wrote uh, praise poems in honor of Olympic victors. And so since Pindar is a sort of icon of Hellenism, uh, the Olympic Games being a pan-Hellenic religious festival, he spares Pindar's house, but otherwise uh, Thebes ceases to exist for about 20 years. One of the key points you make about Thebes is that it continues to resonate in mythology, not just in the ancient Greek world, but right up to the 20th century, right up to now, in fact. And it's been the inspiration for great works. I mean, we can go back to Sophocles, for example, who was arguably the greatest of all the Greek uh, dramatists, Oedipus the King, Antigone, um, all of those which have continued to resonate um, right through to our own age. Um, and how do you explain that presence? Is it about the greatness of people like Sophocles, that those works have continued to endure? Um, what is the explanation for that? And how has it resonated? right up to now. Well, if I can take you back just a little bit further than Sophocles in the 5th century BC, the Thebans themselves had their own epic cycle of myth. So you and I are familiar with the Trojan War epic cycle. Well, the Thebans, the occupation of Thebes, the building of Thebes, the 
famous um, Seven Against Thebes. This is part of the Oedipus cycle of myth. That is actually a kind of rival to the Trojan epic myth. So Thebes in itself is a city which generates its own myths. And in my book, in fact, I distinguish between Thebes, the city of history, which is what I've been talking about mostly up to now, and Thebes, the city of myth. Myth me, meaning simply in Greek, a, a traditional tale, often in verse. And so by the time uh, the fifth century comes around, the Athenians invent uh, our idea of the theatre, and amongst that they invent tragedy and comedy. So you get both types of drama interested in both Athenians themselves, but also in other Greeks. And I think one reason being that in the fifth century BC, the real Thebes was mostly an enemy of Athens. The Athenians projected upon the Thebans everything which Athenians thought was wrong. So in other words, one, in order to be a good Athenian, democratic citizen, you mustn't be an oligarchic Theban sort of person. And uh, the Theban cycle of myth was a gift to them because it includes patricide, Oedipus kills his father, he marries his mother, that's incest, his two sons, he has two sons and two daughters with his uh, mother, who is also his wife, so that his children are also his half-siblings. And two of them, the two boys, the men, fall out. So you have civil war. You then have a campaign on behalf of one of them who's exiled. This is the famous seven against Thebes. Probably seven because in myth, Thebes has seven gates. And in reality, it's actually quite difficult to identify where all the seven were. But it was famous in the real Thebes, as well as in myth, for having strong walls and several gates of, uh, of access. And you mentioned in particular Sophocles, and um, he wrote many, many plays, most of which don't survive. But of the seven that do survive, three are precisely fixated on that Theban cycle of myth. And you mentioned Oedipus the king, you mentioned Antigone. There is also Oedipus at Colonus. And, and that last one's particularly interesting because it uh, imagines Oedipus, he's um, found out that he is the man who killed his father, that he's married his mother, he's committed incest and patricide. So he blinds himself. And the scenario in the Oedipus at Colonus, Colonus being in Athens, it's actually where Sophocles came from in Athens. It's his home village in Athens. Uh, the scenario of this play, which was not actually performed until after Sophocles' death, he died in his 90s, and it was produced by his uh, grandson. It's um, the situation that's imagined is Antigone, one of the two daughters, leads the blinded uh, Oedipus to Athens. His son, who's ruling Thebes, has fallen out with him. So Oedipus is now an exile. That's another theme. The Athenians like to represent themselves as being very nice to exiles. Unlike other cities, they welcome them. They give them sanctuary. And so Antigone leads um, Oedipus to Athens, where he meets the then king of Athens. This is myth, I stress, though the Athenians didn't always distinguish sharply between history and myth as, as we would. So Oedipus is greeted graciously by King Theseus and given sanctuary, he then dies. 
Gods, and a shrine is set up in memory of him, where Athenians, in Sophocles' own day, actually pay cult, they worship the heroized dead Oedipus in the hope that he will do them some good, that since he, as it were, confessed his sins, that he owned up, he realized, he atoned, he's a kind of role model for those who have done something terrible, but nevertheless have found forgiveness, and therefore you appeal to Oedipus's shade to help you in your current situation. And you make the point, perhaps the closest um, art form to that of the classical world of what we're talking about here in Thebes, is opera, which is very much inspired when the the roots of opera are there in Florence in the late um, 16th century and then early in the 17th century in Venice. You draw uh, very strong parallels and the influence of the Greek world on what becomes opera. And in fact, this whole uh, mythology of Thebes has been represented again and again in that particular art form. Yes, um, opera, though it's a Latin word, ironically, uh, is indeed modern opera. I mean, uh, an Italian invention and very specifically Greek inspired that is inspired by Greek mythology. So I'll give you just a few examples from the 20th century. The Romanian composer Inescu did an Oedipus, which traces the entire cycle. He, as it were, combined together all the three so-called Theban plays of Sophocles. So you take him from Oedipus's birth, which he doesn't realize that he's really the, the son of who he really is, the, the, the end in the Oedipus at Colonus that I mentioned already. Uh, Hans van Henser um, wrote uh, an opera called The Bassarids, and Bassarids is another, it's a very learned title because it's another name for menads, and in Greek, menads, minades, means mad women. And the uh, play which encapsulates this aspect of Theban mythology is not by Sophocles, but by Euripides, who's a younger contemporary of. Sophocles. And famously, right at the end of his life, he wrote the Bacchae, which is um, a word meaning female devotees of Dionysus, represented as going mad with delirium at the thought of the arrival of the actual god Dionysus. This is the scenario, imagine, he pitches up at Thebes. And it's the Thebes where the king is Pentheus and uh, Unfortunately, Pentheus's mother is one of the mad women of the title of the play, and she, in her delirium, this trance, this identification with Dionysus, who liberates this kind of frenzied inner self, well, she tears to bits her own son, imagining him to be a wild animal, and uh, his head is actually pulled off and she glories. Uh, the play represents her as holding the head of her just being murdered son, murdered by her. And then suddenly the trance dissipates and she wakes up and realizes what she's done. So that is the tragedy of the Bacchae. And I suppose the lesson there, if you're an Athenian watching that play is, well, be careful what you wish for. Dionysus, the god of wine, yes, he liberates you. Uh, take too much in the wrong context, and it may lead to appalling consequences. 
And then I just mentioned finally a very um, strange sort of um, opera, and it's called Back Kai, written in Greek letters. And it was put on at the ENO, which normally, which has its name, what it says on the tin is the English National Opera. So operas are normally put on in English, but this was actually sung to Greek lyrics from uh, Euripides, a very peculiar thing. So a modern opera which um, attempts to reproduce the original Greek theatrical experience, which was operatic because people did indeed sing um, and different characters sung in different ways, in meter or not in meter and so on. So yes, music was absolutely part of an original Greek theatrical production, but this was a, a rather peculiar uh, experience. And we've seen these, these myths again in cinema. We've seen them in painting. Uh, it continues to resonate in a quite extraordinary way. And that is really part of that compelling story of Thebes, which is what you um, write about in your new book, Thebes, uh, The Forgotten City of Ancient Greece, which is published by Picador. I believe it's out now. And uh, well, thank you, Paul, for telling us about this. Um, this fascinating city that was once real and is now myth but lives on in some extraordinary way thank you thank you paul hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 